You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello, you're listening to Wonder Cupboard, the podcast that asks, I want to know what science is, I want you to show me. My name's Ian Bridgman. And I'm Elena Falca. And today we have a disclaimer. This is going to get quite steamy. And we're going to use explicit language, so please look up your children. <laughs> so, I have a favour to ask you, Ian. Okay. Would you read a poem to me, please? I, I mean, you know, I read poetry to you every night. So, I know. Uh, um, often of my own writing. <laughs> uh, but this time I will, I will, yes, I will write, read someone else's poem. Yeah, this, these are quite um, amazing words. Okay. So I believe you have the text. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. As with white teeth he prints her hand caressed and lay his velvet paw upon her breast. O'er his round face her snowy fingers strain the silken knots and fit the ribbon rein. And now a swan he spreads his plumy sails and proudly glides before the fanning gales pleased on the flowery brink with graceful hand she waves her floating lover to the land. Bright shines his sinuous neck with crimson beak. He prints fond kisses on her glowing cheek. Spreads his broad wings, elates his ebon crest, and clasps the beauty to his downy breast. A hundred virgins join a hundred swains, and fond Adonis leads the sprightly trains. That was lovely. Thank you. I think I swooned. <laughs> so... I mean, obviously, you know what this is about because we've prepared this podcast together. <laughs> and let's not pretend that's not true. But if you didn't know what this poem was about, what would you think it was about? Um, I, I mean, I couldn't possibly say in polite company, madam, <laughs> what I think this poem or what this poem sounds like it's about. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty explicit, isn't it? Yeah. However, it becomes clear what it actually is about which is not what you think it is about okay when you read the paragraph that accompanies the poem and that is framed as an explanation of the word adonis so i'm going to read this paragraph uh-huh. it says many males and many females live together in the same flower ah. Ah. It may seem a solecism in language to call a flower which contains many of both sexes an individual, and the more so to call a tree or shrub an individual which consists of so many flowers, and so on and so forth, and then stuff happens and there's leaves and lungs talked about, which I don't really know how <laughs> they apply to flowers. And then, and I quote again, it talks about a society called the Arioi in the island of Oteiti that consists about a hundred males and a hundred females who form one promiscuous marriage. <laughs> so this poem describes in anthropomorphic terms one of the ways in which plants were believed by some to reproduce in the 1700s. I'm saying anthropomorphic, but then we don't really have beaks. <laughs> So that's not really simulating humans, is it? And also swans are mentioned. They would say swanomorphic. But then <laughs> Swan, this one... That's a real thing. Yeah. It, that's yeah. such a real mm. thing. Yeah, you can swanomorphize all sorts of things, like 
computers and trains. <laughs> um, you know, when they just flap their wings and something. Um, but also, like, this is a weird swan because also it has paws. So it's a bit of a mess. <laughs> it sounds like a bit of a, a like a children's TV show, a swan <laughs> with paws. Like, have you ever seen a Teletubby? <laughs> like, like, is that... Yeah, I can see that. It, it sounds like the kind of thing a Georgian scientist would have pickled and charged entry for. So <laughs> it kind of fits. So this quote is from a book called The Loves of Plants, which was published in 1790 and describes the various ways in which plants were believed to reproduce. The plants are divided up in categories depending on the type of marriage they were in. And I'm quoting with marriage, like they actually use the word marriage. Right. So there's monogamous marriages in which one female plant and one male plant are bound. And then an increasing amount of males get these, gets these marriages up to 20 and then just many, just many males. The number they can go up to is more or less around 100. It's a really strange poem. It alternates descriptions in verse and short paragraphs of explanation in botanical terms. And the descriptions are equally vivid and confusing. You definitely feel like you're there, but you're never quite sure where. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of soft porn, some Greek mythology thrown in, in the mix. Then there's this airy society, which I mentioned before, um, which was a society that had been recently encountered, recently at the time, encountered by James Kirk in Tahiti. So that's a topical reference um, for the author with some wild guessing about other people's sex lives because how did they know that a hundred people were mating another hundred people? Like, that seems unlikely to me. At some point, there's a hot air balloon. Good, good. Yeah, need a hot air balloon. Yeah. Good poetic uh, item. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose hot air balloons were... When were hot air balloons invented? Uh, well, they were a fairly recent invention at okay. the time. It was in the 1700s. So it's a bit like mentioning a Tesla. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's or, like or a, a hyperloop. Yes. Yeah. And plus some kind of wild anthropological discovery like, oh, you know what Trump did yesterday? That's literally <laughs> the level he's working at. So three things are notable about this quote. One, the author of the book is Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of Charles of Dinosaur Fame. Oh, okay. Yes, I've heard of him. Yeah. 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 That was a good chap. <laughs> the, yeah. The the monkey guy. The monkey oh, guy. The monkey guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Erasmus was a doctor, but also an amateur scientist and a member of the Lunar Society of Birmingham, which was a group of professionals, all obviously men, striving to improve society through innovation. The second important thing about this quote is that, believe it or not, this taxonomic poem and Darwin's work as a poet has influenced romantic poets of the calibre of Coleridge, Wordsworth and Shelley. Oh, right, so... Big names. Yeah, <laughs> which from the paragraph, well, the bit that we read before, you wouldn't really think would be inspired by something <laughs> like that, would you? Yeah. In fact, unsurprisingly, it wasn't the style that inspired them. <laughs> it was the content. Scientific notions seem to have seeped into that work. For instance, some analysts see a reflection of Erasmus Darwin's idea of universal sympathy in the rhyme of the ancient mariner, in the relationship between the sailor and the albatross. Shelley was also said to be influenced by Erasmus, and specifically by his early ideas on evolution, 
which in many ways anticipate those of his grandson, especially with regards to uh, sexual selection. The third thing important about this poem is that it wasn't the only one. Other poems were depicting steamy garden orgies, <laughs> and this wasn't even the lewdest. Plant erotica flourished in those years, playing a role in a fierce dispute about plant reproduction, essentially opposing those who believed plants to have sex, called sexualists, and those who believed them to simply reproduce on their own, called asexualists. It took more than a century for the scientific community to fully accept that plants can reproduce sexually, but it was not just due to problem with the science. It was a moral issue. So let's start from the beginning. Theories about the reproduction of plants had been around since ancient Greece. Aristotle believed that plants simply arose from other plants, a process called parthenogenesis. Aristotle is always sticking his nose in, isn't he? Oh, he has opinion on everything. <laughs> I love him. It's like, oh, do you know what? Aristotle would be so irritating down the pub. Because like, <laughs> anything you mentioned, he'd be like, yeah, 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 I, uh, the... Um... Yeah, I know uh, I know a bit about this brewery, actually, and uh, they like to do it this way and this way, and you're like, all right, okay, yeah. Yeah, you know that, do you, Aristotle? Okay, yeah, you're not just making it up. One of my favourite passages from Aristotle is the whole thing about noses. He has this very uh, belaboured metaphor that has noses as the centre of it, and it's about politics or democracy or something, but it's just amazing. It's just like, you know what's interesting? Noses. <laughs> Great guy. So Theophrastus, who was a student of Aristotle and arguably the first botanist, didn't improve much on Aristotle's ideas on plant reproduction, despite extensive observation and some correct findings on cucumbers. (laughs) Of course. I think we just believe that. Yeah. Some correct findings on cucumbers. That's Mm. brilliant, right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, some practical knowledge on plant reproduction existed before then as well, in places like Mesopotamia, for instance, coming mostly from agriculture, where we didn't know exactly how the mechanism of plant reproduction worked. So we just came to broad conclusions based on experience. So it's kind of like when Ian is alone with dime bars, the dime (laughs) bars disappear. Yeah. So therefore, if we want to get rid of a lot of dime bars, we just put them in a room with Ian. Yeah, except in that case, the mechanism is very clear. (laughs) Well, you know, it's clear to us now. (laughs) But, you know, at the start of this discovery, it may not have been clear where the dime bars were going. I wonder what Aristotle would have thought about it. how part of the dime bar was discarded, I guess, sort of an inedible shell. Yeah. Mm. Yes, what would Darwin have thought? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this um, level of confusion continued until the microscope came along. It was invented in 1595. Its use spread over the next couple of decades until someone started to observe slices of plants with it, which allowed them to describe plant and, most importantly for us, flower anatomy, and finally to develop theories about the way plants generated offspring. The first to come up with potential explanations were Italian scientist Marcello Malpighi and English physician Nehemiah Grew. So Mark Piggy held that flowers had periods. Right. So he thought that menstruation in humans was a way to clean up the uterus, which was actually a very common uh, idea at the time. He mm-hmm. didn't come up with this. And this was so that babies can be conceived. 
In the same way, the sap found in plants would clean up the ovary of the flower, which he called uterus, and produce, and I quote, menstrual purgations, end quote, which were the toxic elements that the plant needed to get rid of. Pollen was one of these substances, and according to his model, was pushed out of the flower. So in his view, pollen had nothing to do with conception. It was just waste material. This, however, doesn't explain how new plants are produced, only how the flower is prepared for it. Grew saw Malpighi's menstruation and raised him from sexualism. He placed a lot of importance on what he called the attire, which was the collective name for all the decorative elements of the flower, mostly petals, stamens, which are the filaments from which pollen is released, and calyx, which is the green structure that cradles the flower um, where it's joined to the stalk. He thought that one of the main functions of the attire was to entertain us with their beauty, as God intended. But it was also a way to protect the modesty of flowers. In his words, flowers were like proper ladies. <laughs> and the calyx would hold them up and cover their parts like a bodice. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the modesty of the flower, please. <laughs> oh, wow. The, the calyx could also swell up as the fruit was formed to accommodate the fruit. So it was a bit like maternity clothing right. for <laughs> flowers. This process was compared to pregnancy and ends in the birth of the fruit. But how is the fruit created in the first place? Well, the stamen, which starts as part of the menstrual discharge, as described by Malpighi, after releasing pollen, becomes the plant's penis. Of course. And why would that be, pray tell? <laughs> well, I, I think we'll have to ask the man who developed this theory in the first place. <laughs> what did he say? He said it just looks like one. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> sure. So it's like, if it looks like a penis and discharges like a penis. There are whole internet subcultures founded for similar reasons. <laughs> if it looks like a penis and it discharges like a penis. <laughs> so Drew even claimed that stamens have prepucia and small testicles, which are the anthers, the parts that contain the pollen. So pollen is vegetable sperm. Yeah, okay. Which was a pretty good intuition except he had no empirical evidence for it whatsoever. just sounded good. <laughs> and as to, as to how these hermaphroditic plants would get in touch with each other to reproduce, he just had no idea. Right, okay. Um, so not much progress on the mechanism front here. But good intuition good. A, about pollen. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Literally yeah. just that. <laughs> I mean... So a, a horny clock strikes twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> so one idea that was floating about at the time was preformationism, which means that a seed contains a small plant, which contains tiny seeds with even tinier plants inside. <laughs> and so on and so forth. At some point, the seeds detach from the parent plant and develop into a new plant. So there is no need for interaction between plants. All plants that will ever exist are already here, fully formed, just tiny. <laughs> I really like that idea. It's really cute. Yeah, it's lovely, um, isn't it? And, you know, I guess why not? Uh, well, 
because it's not true, but like it's it's quite a nice idea. If you don't know how small things can go, if you don't know anything about atoms. Yeah, I'm just thinking about what will happen when we run out of plants <laughs> because you can't get too small. Like unless you have infinite plants in one seed. It's, it's plants all the way down. <laughs> they keep going. So the first person to prove all these people wrong was Rudolf Jakob Kammerer, known with the Latinized form of his name, which is Camerarius. So uh, we're going to hear a little bit about people who are mostly known by Latinized forms of their name. How did, why did this happen? You know what? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds quite... Did they do it kind of... Were they given those names afterwards or did they kind of all do it at the time because they fancied themselves as scholars? Well, Latin was still used as a language in science at the time. Right. So I see no reason why they wouldn't just translate their own names or other people's names. Right, okay, yeah. Um, Because it would have stood out looking weird if they'd been writing about other people and they hadn't used a Latin name, I guess. I guess. (laughs) I I didn't have conclusive information about this, but Latin was very much the language of science, so why not? Mm. So Camerarius first dissected buds, mm-hmm. then flowers, and could distinctly see unfertilized ovules in the bud slowly becoming fruit after pollination. So there were no tiny plants. And in order to verify whether at least some plants reproduce sexually, he separated female plants from male plants and verified that most of the time no reproduction took place. He did this with cannabis and maize. Right, so hang on. His science experiment was spending time on his own with weed and popcorn. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's an awful lot of scientists around, uh, if that's all it takes. That's all I'm saying. Well, that's what mostly happens in universities nowadays, so I don't know why you're surprised. <laughs> um, obviously, I'm talking about students. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, no. I mean, no, no professor would no. indulge in such evil. <laughs> <laughs> so he also removed the male parts of the maze, so of the popcorn, mm-hmm. um, and verified that next to no viable seeds were produced. The exceptions, he worked out eventually, were due to the fact that some plants occasionally produce hermaphroditic flowers. Then, of course, he wrote a poem about it. (laughs) Do you want to do the honours? I'll do the honours. When winter's gone and spring succeeds, with gentle blasts Favonius blows, the opening flowers each sex disclose and promise future seeds. Definitely stoned. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, dude, like, I wrote this awesome poem. I was, uh, yeah, I was playing with the corn again. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm really hungry. (laughs) So in this poem, he mentions the wind as the means by which pollen is transported from male plants to female plants, thereby solving the mystery of how plants could have sex in the first place. Uh-huh. People were not impressed with Camarius's work. At the French Royal Academy of Sciences, they were still using Gru and Mulpigis model with pollen as a waste material until someone called Sébastien Vaillant came on the scene. He was quite an interesting man. He had been a musical prodigy as a child, 
then self-taught medicine and became an assistant surgeon, which is a testament to just how easily you could get to cut people up at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine the advert. It's, uh, do you like cutting up meat, but <laughs> you're too posh to be a butcher? <laughs> Apply within, must bring own saw. When he moved to Paris, he attended a lecture and realized that botany was his truth. <laughs> so he went to lectures and networked his way into the Jardin du Roi, which was a center for botany research in Paris. He became assistant demonstrator and uh, was maintaining the herbarium as well. His merit was not to have come up with anything new on the subject. In fact, he was even accused of plagiarism, but to present it in an engaging manner. Due to lucky circumstances, he got to give the opening lecture for the botany course of 1717. He admitted that, quote, the language I am going to use for this purpose will seem a little novel for botany and that it will be more comprehensible than the old-fashioned terminology. And then he launches in the raunchiest ever university lecture. <laughs> There's a passage that is worth quoting in full, and Ian, please okay. take it away. The tension or swelling of the male organs occurs so rapidly that the lips of the bud, giving way to such impetuous energy, open with astonishing speed. At that moment, these excited organs, which seem to think only of satisfying their own violent desires, abruptly discharge in all directions, creating a tornado of dust which expands, carrying fecundity everywhere. And by a strange catastrophe, they now find themselves so exhausted that at the very moment of giving life, they bring upon themselves a sudden death. That's my, that's my best Shakespearean. I thought it was brilliant. Thanks. It was very powerful. <laughs> also, it's worth noting that in French, the orgasm is referred to as le petit mort, which means the small death. So that sudden right, death yeah. at the end was pretty explicit for the audience. Mm -hmm. So after that, he took the audience to the gardens for a live demonstration, giving <laughs> tips on how to prod the flowers that were unwilling to perform while being observed. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can imagine they might need a bit of fresh air after that. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> also, that's just the guy that you want for advice on foreplay, isn't it? Mm. Just prod her. <laughs> just prod her until she's willing to perform. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so at this point, the sexual theory of plant reproduction gained momentum until it became the basis for the taxonomy of plants. That, of course, was developed by, and above as I say his name, chief taxonomer, Swedish scientist Carl von Linné, better known as Linnaeus. For those who are familiar with his name, he is known essentially for being an extremely tidy man. In fact, he was so tidy that, not satisfied with inventoring all of his possessions, he decided to stick a label on every living being on Earth. He was tidy and ambitious. He's the person who developed the method of classification of species that, with some modifications, is still in use today. He popularized binomial nomenclature, by which you call a being with two words, the first of which is the genus, and the second, which normally is an adjective, the species. So, for instance, Homo is our genus, and Sapiens indicates the species. He was also the son of a Lutheran vicar and a very pious Christian. 
The only boy who could categorize me was the son of a preacher man. <laughs> so he thought that God wanted him to popularize botany, making it accessible for the wider public. This is why he decided to come up with a user-friendly taxonomy of plants based on what people already knew, sex. The taxonomy was based on the sexual organs of flowers and on the number of their partners. In his work, Sistema Natura, see, Latin name, mm-hmm. he includes a section called, quote, marriages of plants. He divided up these marriages in public, when the plants have seeds, and clandestine, typical of those plants that don't have seeds, but spores like ferns, mosses, algae, and fungi, which... We wouldn't consider a plant now, um, but he did at the time. So mushrooms are not plants. Maybe they want to be plants. <laughs> this is very mean. <laughs> well, they do mingle with plants a lot, they don't mingle. they? Yeah, they grow on plants. Yeah. Oh, bless. <laughs> um, he subdivided the ones in public marriages based on whether husband and wives occupy one bed, that is, hermaphroditic flowers, with both organs in the same place or whether they slept in separate beds. He made no guesses as to why this would be the case. Was one of them snoring? (laughs) Did they get up at different times? Hate each other? We'll never know. More detailed subdivisions involved monogamous and polygamous flowers, based on how many flowers of each sex were found on the same plant. And even lovers for both parts of the happy couple. Because, of course, in plants with hermaphroditic flowers, the stamen was the husband, the pistil was the wife, so male and unisexual flowers had to be the lovers. Of course. Yeah. yeah. In order to divide the plants in classes, he used the number of stamens, so husbands, and the subordinate category within classes is based on the number of pistils, so wives. Some scholars see bias here. There was no empirical reason for pistols to be subordinate to stamens, but in a patriarchal society, wives are, of course, subordinated to husbands. So that's how it went. That being said, there were plants that were promiscuous and polyandrous, so perhaps the influence is not as big as some argue. And this is a taxonomy used by Erasmus Darwin in The Loves of Plants, and he was not the only one to be inspired. So poetry about plants getting it on became commonplace. Hurrah! (laughs) A subgenre we really needed. (laughs) Well, it's not as bad as dinosaur erotica. No, true. That would have come with his grandson. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So in some cases, plants were a metaphor for human sex. Well, in other cases, it was really just about the plants. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so my favourite is The Natural History of the Frutex Vulvaria, published in 1741, by allegedly Thelogenes Clitorides. Right. <laughs> which is obviously a pseudonym. And I love how the first name sounds a bit like Greek, but it's spelled Thelogenes, like G-Y-N-E-S which is fake ancient Greek for someone who likes women. Uh, it's like saying women file. Right, okay. Yeah. To the credit, the surname betrays a certain amount of altruism. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for recognising that we have them. <laughs> On behalf. <laughs> um, 
This piece was dedicated to, end quote, and this is really embarrassing, the two fair owners of the finest Volvarias in the Three Kingdoms. Mm. Gross. <laughs> it's another one of those dedications that's like, mm, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you really shouldn't have. <laughs> this was a comment published with the main poem that was called The Natural History of the Arbor Vitae, or Tree of Life, which starts thus. The Tree of Life. Another name for PNS, but in which is really subtle. Yeah. Uh, but in sense the same is a rich plant of balmy juice and owned to be of sovereign use, consisting of one single stem that's straight as it is a pistillum, whose top sometimes the curious say is like a cherry seen in May or glandiform, but's found to be more oft like nut of filbered tree. <laughs> Quite the reverse of other fruit, this grows and dangles near the root, producing two of a nutmeg kind, twin-like, in one strong purse confined. The fruits receive a strong supply and yield a viscous balmy juice adapted to Volvaria's use. Really embarrassing. Yeah, uh. I, I really, I was cringing all the way through. So as for the science on which this poem was based... It is sufficient to say that it was allegedly based on the work of the eminent botanist Leonard Facius. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely a, definitely a real botanist. Yeah. <laughs> so another, one, uh, another one of these poems was Mimosa, or The Sensitive Plant, uh, published in 1779 by James Perry, which mainly recounts gossip about liaisons in the aristocracy at the time. So you have to keep in mind that these poems were not meant to be treasured literature. They were read out loud at gentlemen's clubs, often by the authors themselves. So just picture a room full of posh men with one hand on their fifth pint and the other on the arse of an unlucky waitress. Mm. Needless to say, there are a lot of sexist jokes in them. One interpretation of these poems is that they provided a way to let off steam at a time when feminism was moving its first steps. The most influential early feminist treaty, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft, came out in 1792, two years after The Loves of Plants. It has been argued that a general sentiment that women should be emancipated had already been floating about when Wollstonecraft published her work, and there was definitely a society-wide worry that the traditional relationship between men and women might be undergoing some kind of shift. This is related to another reason why some people resisted the idea of sexual reproduction in plants. And that had to do with the fact that botany was considered one of the few hobbies appropriate for women. If it turned out that studying plants was akin to pornography, that would have shed a whole different light on their innocent afternoons in the garden. So to avoid this pickle, people were either trying to demonstrate that plants are as pure and sexless as Barbie and Ken, or to keep virgins indoors. In fact, Wollstonecraft was at the end of the 18th century accused of encouraging women to follow the Linnean system, and that got entangled with political issues made relevant by the French Revolution that was happening in France at the same time. Asexualists claimed that the Linnean system was, as well as feminist, anarchic and libertine. In fact, a commentator at the time was appalled to learn that sometimes, quote, Boys and girls were seen botanizing together. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, 
<laughs> the scandal. The birth of loves of plants illustrates these points very well. The idea for the poem came actually to a woman, poet Anna Seward, upon visiting Erasmus Darwin's garden, which was arranged based on the linear system, which, by the way, if everyone's interested, is still thriving and open to the public. It's in Erasmus Darwin House in Litchfield, Staffordshire, here in the UK. Anyway, the idea came to her, and Erasmus encouraged her to write the poem. But she declined on the grounds of modesty. Then went on to publish anonymously, and I'm doing air quotes here Mm because everyone knew it was her, the poem The Backwardness of Spring Accounted For, which is a celebration of the richness of plant reproduction and of Linnaeus' skill in tidying up the mess. Essentially, in her poem, the flowers are the participants in a glorious, classless, gender-defying orgy, while Linnaeus is the guy who bought the snacks and hands around condoms. Right. (laughs) The philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau maintained that it was fine for women to study botany, as long as they didn't concern themselves with the sex bit. (laughs) Neat. But also, as long as they steered away from abstraction. At the time, women were denied a formal education beyond the basics, but a lot of female autodidacts managed nonetheless to publish treaties, especially in the field we would now call biology. You can see how some male scientists might have found that threatening. Essentially, women were allowed to know enough botany to please the gentlemen in their life. Right. But not to be themselves original authors, which is very sad. You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. There were other moral issues that had to do with this, because this was considered a moral issue. Right, uh, yeah. Women, <laughs> emancipation was a moral issue. And it had to do with the mixing of species. The religious-inspired truth accepted at the time was that God had created the species with the world and that they had remained the same since. Now, if you accept sexual reproduction in plants, that opens the door for the existence of hybrids, which would throw the whole system into disarray. You might say, but hold your horses, my lady, or shall I say your mules, which may I point out are the offspring of donkeys and horses. Were they not aware of their existence? Well, yes, they were, but a mule is sterile, so technically not the start of a new species, which by definition needs to be able to reproduce on its own. So shut up, Mr. Splainer. A little uh, preemptive strike there against anyone who might try and argue against that point. <laughs> I just really like to argue in my head against imaginary people. Yeah, no, it's, I can see the appeal. This guy wears a fedora hat. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, in particular, legendary is the fight between Linnaeus and his arch enemy and the best possible villain for our story. Otherwise irrelevant botanist, Johann Georg Sigurdsson. So I'm trying to amp up the kind of the villain aspect. Where do you think a villain botanist would live? Um, I think in a really scary mushroom castle. (laughs) A giant mushroom castle. Going, I am a plant! (laughs) Yeah, struck by lightning every now and then. That sounds about right. Mm. So initially Sigisbeck and Linnaeus were entertaining a cordial professional correspondence exchanging letters and plant materials, then Sigisbeck started outright insulting him. Mm-hmm. So a quote just to give you a flavour of his tone. 
What man will ever believe that God Almighty should have introduced such confusion or rather shameful whoredom <laughs> for the propagation of the reign of plants? Who will instruct young students in such a voluptuous system without scandal? And so on and so forth. Now, Linnaeus was a very pious man, as we said. He thought taxonomy was his God-given mission. So all these being accused of heresy and immorality genuinely upset him. In response, he used the most powerful weapon he had, naming things according to very specific rules. <laughs> Given that in his own taxonomy, the rule was that there should be a link between the plant and the botanist it was named after, he gave the name Sigisbechia orientalis to a smelly weed. That was very mature. Well done, Linares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I looked up this weed. Apparently, it's renowned for being unpleasant to the point that its Chinese name, which I'm going to mispronounce, but I'm going to try, it should be Chi Chang Kao, means pig pungent weed. Right. <laughs> there you go. This polemic really hurt Linares' reputation back home in Sweden uh, when this whole thing was happening he was um in holland and that was 1737 so people thought that his system had been discredited on theological grounds he realized that he couldn't counteract Seegers back with scientific evidence so he got two theologians and future archbishops involved in the question they were carl friedrich menander and johann bravalius bravalius was the one who provided the killer argument He published an essay in which he wrote that morality is a system of laws that God has given to humanity and does not apply to nature. If morals applied to animals, then roosters would be polygamous and bees polyandrous, but that's absurd. Nature was, in other words, beyond morality, and so were plants. Of course, this makes sense if you don't think of people as part of nature, which actually Linnaeus sort of did and which got him in trouble later, but at this point, no one raised the issue. This essay did help rehabilitating Linnaeus, who, as a thank you, named the whole genus Provalia, which, according to Better Homes and Gardens... A reputable magazine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so according to them, and I quote, earns its nicknames of Amethyst Flower and Sapphire Flower for the richness of its small blue flowers, which pop out like jewels against the bright green of its foliage. A tidy mounding plant, it's great in containers or planted as edging in a neat row at the front of the border. Hmm, good to know. Yeah. Come for the science, stay for the gardening tips. <laughs> <laughs> This did not dissuade Sigersbeck, who continued to attack Linnaeus throughout the 1740s, up to when he became a professor of botany at the Russian Academy of Sciences. There are different versions of the details of the story I'm about to tell, but they don't matter. The essence of it is that, as part of an academic exchange of seeds, a packet of Sigisbechia orientalis, so the smelly weed, ended up in Sigisbech's hands through another botanist in a packet that Linnaeus had deliberately relabeled Cuculus ingratus, which means ungrateful cuckoo. Right. Imagine Sigurds back then. He received a packet, had a little chuckle at yet another sick botanical burn, then he planted the seeds, and... It was the pig smelly weed. It was the pig smelly <laughs> weed. 
burn. <laughs> Delayed burn. Because... Because he would have had to have planted the seeds and watered them and tended to them. It's like, it's a very, like, can you imagine Linnaeus chuckling to himself for about a month, <laughs> waiting for, or longer, waiting for this to pay off? Yeah. I think that's very pleasant. Because mm. I picture him as a very patient man. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. In order to categorize everything that exists in the realm of nature, you need to be very patient yeah, and very true. neat. Mm. So I think it, it suits him. Just waking up, looking out the window. <laughs> mm. Anyway, more labels. Um, so after the row with Seeger's back, Linnaeus got so paranoid about accidental heresy that he asked theologians to look over his work before publication. Yeah, I worry about that on Twitter all the time. It's like, <laughs> and, you know, before you click tweet, oh, have I done heresy? <laughs> and it's, it's such a, it seems to be a particular risk uh, that scientists around the time of the enlightenment had yeah uh, <laughs> so they just oh heresy again oops <laughs> so despite all this paranoia this didn't save his books from being banned by the church of course <laughs> they just love banning stuff oh, don't they can't get enough of it yeah so pope clement the 13th in 1759, banned all of his books and ordered them burned. That being said, the main reason had to do with the inclusion of humans amongst primates. Even though for theological reasons, Linnaeus created the genus Homo that only includes humans, when really it would make more sense to put humans in the same genus as big apes. Right. Essentially, he can't make anyone happy <laughs> because either you can see the humans a separate entity or part of nature, it's always wrong. This deserves a whole other episode, the issue of what are we in the grand scheme of things. Um, so the point here is that his works on botany got dragged in the fire with the rest. The Sistema Nature was finally rehabilitated by Pope Clement XIV in 1774. Right, so that's... Uh, 15 years difference between them being burned and them being... I'm just thinking, like, these book burners, these people, <laughs> they must be so frustrated, like, having... All right, okay, fine, we'll get all the Linnaeus books. I mean, they'll stay warm through winter, there's benefit. But, you know, they, they work really hard on, on burning, getting rid of all this knowledge, and then the next Pope, 15 years later, goes, yeah, she was all right after all. And they go, oh, <laughs> God, so much work. <laughs> I just, I just feel a bit sorry for for yeah. Renaissance book burners. Do you think that there was one in the team that hid one of the copies, going, "Ah, it's gonna be rehabilitated or <laughs> what?" Anyway, wonder covered. So of course, not all asexualists were simply playing the god card. People were minutely criticizing each other's experimental designs and ideas, exchanging samples, debating the results. Issues regarding replication and isolating variables surfaced. Things like, where did you put your pots? Were they outdoors or indoors? How many species were in the same garden? This all mattered to the actual results of the experiments and whether or not they were comparable to each other. These are, of course, fundamental to science. Progress was also made on the issue of how pollen is spread in species where male and female flowers are on separate plants. The role of wind and animals was recognised. We don't have the space to go into detail here, but I'll tell you how to find more information, should you wish to, when we get to the references. 
that would finally solve the theory was the existence of hybrids. As mentioned before, hybrids would demonstrate that plants indeed reproduce sexually, but they were considered some sort of myth in botanical circles. In fact, when Linnaeus was sent a sample of a plant found by a student in Uppsala and realised that it looked like a mix of two other plants, he thought it was a hoax. He had been sent a specimen in dried form, glued to paper, so he thought the student had attached an unknown flower to a plant called Linaria vulgaris. When he saw the real, live plant, he was so baffled, he called it peloria, which means monstrous in Greek. The only way to explain it without thinking that a plant would generate offspring so astonishingly different from the parent plant was to believe in hybrids, which in this case is ironic because it was not a hybrid. Right, so the plant that he thought was monstrous and actually a hybrid... Was not a hybrid. Right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the plant that convinced him that hybrids exist. Which they do. Which they do, (laughs) but that plant should not have have been been the one. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, quite fine. Um, Yeah, the current understanding is that this plant was actually mutant linaria. Right, okay. But of course, at the time, without knowing anything about genetics, that explanation was just not available to him. A series of milestone experiments were conducted by an obsessive German botanist called Josef Gottlieb Kerlreuter. He was the first person to demonstrate that insects have a role in pollinating flowers. At some point, he sat in front of a hibiscus flower for a whole day, chewing off insects. <laughs> That's kind of harsh on the insects. I could be like, <laughs> hey, Steve, how you doing? <sighs> Not great, to be honest. That guy's still there. <laughs> Do you think he became the most coveted flower in the garden? Probably, yeah. The, the, the insect completionists are like, I know it shouldn't matter. I know it's just one plant, but this guy, <laughs> I, it's, it's got to me, Steve. It's got to me. <laughs> Now I'm picturing them queuing up in front of the hibiscus going, it's so hard to get in there. It must be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously at the end of the day, the flower withered without producing any seeds, confirming that pollination is necessary for reproduction. I think this is lovely. Yeah, good work. Another time, and this is also just so cute, he collected nectar from orange blossoms so just a little bit from each orange blossom, and left it to dry out a bit. Then he tasted it and was very pleased to realise that it was honey. Okay, Ah, so... So where are we getting there? So he even advanced the hypothesis that the function of the nectar is to attract insects for pollination. And he even, even at the time, worried about the potential extinction of pollinating insects, which is a problem nowadays Mm. for us. Most importantly, he reported 140 cases of cross-pollination between 1760 and 1765, and even had a theory to appease the church. So, bonus. (laughs) So he thought that hybridization is possible, but mostly happens in gardens where species are mixed regardless of geography. So species that come from different parts of the world are mixed in the same place. In nature, this was obviously quite rare. Due to God's gardening skills, (laughs) he scattered different species of plants away from each other so that hybridization would be difficult. He's done a good job on the gardening generally as God. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Big on landscaping. (laughs) Uh, What about decking? That's the thing. There's no way to put a barbecue, is there? (laughs) Yeah. Mm. 
you know, overall good job. But I think maybe think about you've got to think about how you use your outdoor space. Yeah. Particularly in the warmer months. Yeah. yeah. But also when it rains, like put a gazebo out. Something. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So a, a bit of a trellis, anything like that. Yeah. Anyway, but lovely. So Colroyter's theory on reproduction was that fluids from male and female plants that he called semen would mix and create new plants, which may sound strange, but was corroborated by further evidence. Some kinds of mosses actually produce motile sperm cells. So sperm cells that move. That move. Right. Towards their aim, mm-hmm. which is the egg that they reach through the pollen tube. And they fuse together and create a zygote. In androsperms, sperm cells also contribute to create the endosperm, which is a nutrient liquid found in seeds, meant to nourish the developing embryo. And by the way, these are plants we're very familiar with because we eat them. Right. So examples of androsperms are cherries, oranges, broccoli, lettuce, also, there are some plants that appeal to us for the seeds themselves because we like to eat them, right? Like wheat, rice, almonds, and these are also endosperms. And the thing we like about them, where all the lovely nutrients are, is the endosperm. And you know what else is a seed? A coconut. Oh. So coconut water is plant sperm. <laughs> <laughs> And very expensive plant sperm as well. I've seen it in the shops. Yeah. That's yeah. a good way to mock people you meet at festivals this summer. Just go, ah, that's plant sperm. <laughs> <laughs> See how they react. It's the hip new festival trend, drinking plant sperm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what next? <laughs> Tree blowjobs? <laughs> so, all said and done, it took until the middle of the 19th century for reproduction in plants to be accepted as truth which is almost a full century after the debate started, an absurdly long time. It took us much less to accept relativity and quantum theory. Just think about it. It was easier to convince people that space bends and we are made of particles which may or may not be where we think they are than of the fact that plants reproduce like everyone else. And now, the references. So the main inspiration for this episode came from a book called Flora Unveiled, which is an excellent book by Lincoln and Lee Taze. It's a very thorough book. They have their own theses on why plant reproduction wasn't accepted for a long time, which personally I don't fully subscribe to, but it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'll leave it to you to discover it. So if you're interested on the poetry side, and I'm not talking about the rude poetry side, <laughs> the paper that I use as a source is called Erasmus Darwin, Scientific Source for the Romantic Poets. And it's written by Desmond King Heal, which is the guy on Erasmus Darwin. So if you want to know anything about Erasmus Darwin, just Google him. You'll find loads. He has written books and papers and all sorts. He was all around quite an interesting guy, was Erasmus Darwin. Oh, definitely, yes. I think a whole episode on Erasmus Darwin would be interesting as well. Um, he did um, foreshadow a lot of what his grandson then put 
on paper. Mm -hmm. um, as I said before, especially sexual selection. And in fact, some people even think that Darwin, like Charles Darwin, took inspiration from his grandfather. Mm. Um, and also the whole thing about the Lunar Society is amazing. Um, we might talk about it at some point. It's mm -hmm. just it's just brilliant. Um, which, by the way, still exists. Oh, okay, so, right. <laughs> you may join the Lunar Society, if you do wish to. Another book I used is Erasmus Darwin, Sex, Science and Serendipity by Patricia Farham. It's a great book. It's very well written, very interesting, very clever. And if you just can't get enough of plant plus sex concoctions, you can also look up Sex, Botany and Empire, also by Patricia Farah, which is not about plant sex. But she probably just liked the combination. Mm. It reads well. It's a good title. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It flows. I used other sources as well, but I'm going to put more details and actual details for the sources that I just mentioned on the website. Which is wondercovered.com. And you can also email us, hello at wondercovered.com, if you want to say hi or tell us a fun science story or just, you know, you're bored and your fingers are moving, just move them over your keyboard. Or if you want to mansplain something to me. <laughs> or to me, you know. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. I might mansplain something back to you. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be fun. <laughs> uh, we're also on Twitter. Yeah. At WonderCovered. We're on Facebook, WonderCovered. And we're on Instagram, WonderCovered Podcast. The one the old one out there. <laughs> someone got the username. Down, down. <laughs> Uh, we have to be inconsistent because of them. I know. I hate inconsistency. Linnaeus would be furious. Oh. <laughs> so um, do have a look at us there where we put nice photos and sciencey bits. Yeah. Uh, I think that's it for this time. So what have we learned today? I think we've learned that uh, if a scientist offers to read you some poetry, just make any excuse you can jump out the window <laughs> it's the safest option just say no just say no <laughs> bye 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 wonder cupboard